This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky Night magazine. My name is Kev Lotchen and I'm joined today by the dulcet tones of news editor Elizabeth Pearson. Hello. And editor assistant Ian Todd. Hello. Coming up, I've got a special 2016 retrospective edition of News Bingo for these guys and for you, our listeners at home. We are going to hear from the Sky Night TV show's Pete Lawrence. But first, well, last episode, we were talking about the loss of Issa Marsland de Chaparelli, which appears to have crashed on the Red Planet. This month, we're going to start by looking back at another ill-fated Marslander, the UK-led Beagle 2. Yes, uh, with festive season fast approaching, we um, we cast our minds back to Christmas Day 2003, uh, which was the day that the Beagle 2 spacecraft was due to land on Mars to begin its hunt for, um, for signs of life. Uh, of course, the spacecraft never made contact with Earth and was presumed by many to have been destroyed. Um, and it wasn't it wasn't heard of or seen again until January 2015 uh, when it was discovered on the Martian surface in images captured by the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. Uh, and last month, a new, new discovery was made that revealed Beagle 2 may have actually deployed some of its solar panels and may even have begun carrying out some uh, initial operations. Um, as we all know, Beagle 2 was led by British scientist the late Colin Pillinger. And recently, I attended the second annual Colin Pillinger Memorial Talk at the University of Bristol. Uh, I managed to catch up with Professor Mark Sims, who was mission manager of Beagle 2 until September 2004. Uh, and he told me about the latest discovery. Thanks very much for talking to me, Professor Simmons. Oh, pleasure. I was wondering if you could uh, start by telling us a bit about your work with um, Colin and uh, your work on Beagle 2. Okay. Um, I first met Colin back in 1995 when he offered me a job, and I turned him down. Uh, despite that, in 1997, when the Beagle 2 project came along, uh, I got involved in Beagle 2. Originally, I was the project manager uh, until uh, major funding came along in 1999. Then I turned into the mission manager responsible for the flight operations and uh, getting the instruments to the spacecraft on time. And it's actually quite fitting that we're we're discussing Colin and Beagle 2 at the moment because there's been some quite interesting news in the past week about Beagle 2. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, we've, um, well, back in 2000, well, let's, let's rewind a bit. Uh, we lost Beagle 2 after the 19th of December 2003 when it was ejected from Mars Express. And we had no idea what happened to it until late November 2014. And a chap called Michael Croom, who was an ex-European Space Agency employee, found a bright object on the surface of Mars, which turned out to be Beagle 2. We've imaged it up to eight times since then. Uh, unfortunately, Beagle 2 is so small, it's only about 1.6 by 1.8 metres, that it only covers eight pixels in the camera. So it's very difficult to actually ascertain what configuration it, it, it's in. Um, it occurred to me, having sort of watched uh, sun glinting off windows down the road I live in, in actual fact, uh, we have a number of different images at different sun angles, and Beagle 2 looks drastically different. Now that is telling us some information about what the configuration of Beagle 2 is on the surface of Mars. So I had what was 
sounded like a daft idea at the time. Could you actually simulate Beagle 2 on the surface of Mars in a number of different configurations and try to get it to match to the images we see with the camera? the orbiting camera, high-rise on Mars reconnaissance orbiter. Uh, I didn't have the capability of doing that. And I was chatting to a friend one night over a cup of tea, and she, her supervisor at De Montford University happens to do this sort of thing for a living, not in terms of finding uh, lost landers on Mars, but in actual fact in terms of uh, reconstructions of Roman village, villages, etc., in virtual reality, complete with, you know... A, the optics, if you like, the optics trace to make it look real. Um, so we linked up with uh, Nick Higgett and Theodora uh, at De Montford University, and I said, well, can you do something along these lines? Could you model Beagle 2 on the surface of Mars? And then we'd try and match it with the images. And they managed to find some money uh, to support Theodora, who was the 3D visualisation specialist who did all the hard work. And over from November 2015 through to a few weeks ago, we've been modelling Beagle 2 and doing a comparison with the images. And it turns out that when you actually do the comparison, you do a virtual reality model, you then pixelate it at the same pixel size that uh, high-rise would be. You have to play around a bit where the margins of the pixels are. And that's sort of done by human eye, what's the best match? When you do that mathematically and by human eye, there's two configurations which are very good matches. Uh, One is with three panels deployed and one is with four panels deployed, but the fourth panel not fully deployed, but maybe deployed enough that the antenna would be exposed. In the three-panel case, it's quite clear-cut why we never heard from Beagle 2 because the fourth panel would cover the transmission and reception antenna and so Beagle 2 was probably sat on the surface saying, hello, hello, where are you? Um, and nobody could reply and nobody could hear it. If the fourth panel is deployed um, sufficiently to expose the antenna, then we have a bit more of a, uh, a mystery, but that could be down to uh, software issues, it could be down to timing issues, it could be a broken wire, it could be a failed component meaning that we never heard the transmission on Christmas Day 2003. It does mean that Beagle 2 probably worked for a while on the surface of Mars, and there's extremely low probability it might even be working today on the basis of the Mars Exploration Rovers, which landed a few weeks later. At least opportunity is still going. Um, I consider that unlikely as a scientist and an engineer. Mm. As a human being, I'd love it to be the case obviously um but it certainly landed intact it certainly started to deploy it probably even did some basic science and then tried to transmit the data and for some reason we didn't hear it mm-hmm. um so th- it started a new chapter in beagle 2 we've we can look we can do some more analysis we can do some more modeling what we had you know, we had limited resources to do this we can go back and see if we can uh, pull even more out the images um this is, if you like, the third attempt to find the configuration of Beagle 2. There was some uh, data processing done by Tim Park of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory back in uh, December and January, uh, December 2014, January 2015, which showed this sort of Mickey Mouse shape, as we, we said, on the surface. Um, 
Jan Peter Muller, Professor Jan Peter Muller, University College London, used his um, uh, computer-intensive super-resolution technique, uh, which does lots of fancy mathematics and produced some high-resolution images of Beagle 2 back in April this year, 2016. But that does combine the data from all the different sun angles. Uh, and the third technique we've got is now we've got uh, models of what Beagle 2 looks like without any image processing whatsoever. And we're trying to match those to the, if you like, the raw in inverted comma images. Um, so all of the processing looks, um, uh, gives you the same result, basically. It's, it's at least two panels or three panels, maybe even four panels. Uh, there may be more we can pull out the data. If we get some more images from Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, we may be able to do some more processing. And uh, it makes me wonder, given the fact that uh, it's been a long time since Beagle 2 disappeared, whether it's even still working there today. Mm-hmm. If, if we did find out that it had at least worked for a while, would that then mean that there, was, um, that there would be an ambition to to try and get its data, or would that even be possible? Um, <coughs> unless it's working today, we won't be able to get its, its, its data. It's uh, uh, impossible to do that without any power there. Uh, if it's still working today, if, you could, uh, if it could transmit and if, it, if uh, you could receive the data, then possibly you might be able to do it. it. It does mean it did work for a while and it did do its first day's worth of science, taking an image of the landing site probably. That was fairly shortly after landing. Um, and taking some data from the environmental sensors. So in principle, that's still in the solid-state memory on board Beagle 2. Whether you can ever get, get it without somebody wandering up in 20 or 30 years' time on the surface of Mars and pick, picking, the, picking the thing up and bringing it back, I don't know. How do you think Colin would have reacted to the news? He would have been ecstatic. Uh, I feel it very, very sad that Colin died without knowing really what happened to Beagle 2. Uh, Colin and the whole team took a lot of stick back in 2004 when Beagle 2 was classed as a failure. And uh, what we do know from the images is by no means it was a failure. It got there. It got excruciatingly close. It got 99% of the way there as uh, uh, Robert Manning, the chief engineer at JPL said, you know, you got so damn close, it's untrue. (laughs) Thanks very much for talking to me, Professor Sims. Pleasure. Now we're going to launch straight into our 2016 retrospective edition of News Bingo. Yay. (laughs) I'm going to read out eight questions based on some of the biggest space news stories of the year. You will have pads in front of you, so all you have to do is guess what I'm talking about. So, first one. In January... Astronomers Mike Brown and Konstantin Batygin predicted that our solar system has a ninth major planet. Can you tell me which planet in the solar system this Planet Nine is most similar to? Um, I think it was most similar to Neptune. Yeah, absolutely right, Ian. Didn't put anything, apologies. It was an ice giant um, similar to Uranus or Neptune. Um, Other fun facts, has an elliptical orbit which takes 10 to 20,000 years and is the estimated mass of 10 Earths. Quite a big one. Yeah, chances are we're not going to see it anytime soon because it gets very, very far away. Mm, Probably waiting for the next generation of big telescopes. Will JWST be able to? 
Um, I think that's a, a big if, depending on how bright it is and where it is. It might, but who, who knows? knows? Okay. Right, next one. In February, astronomers detected something that had been first predicted in Einstein's general theory of relativity in 1915. Can you tell me what it was and what most likely caused it? Ian? It was gravitational waves and... You're right, and the source? Was it was it a collision between two black holes? Absolutely right. Mm. Do you remember what the uh, the second less likely theory is for why they found gravitational waves? Um, is it something to do with neutron stars? Kind of, yes. It, it's, it um, usually is. It's a special <laughs> type of neutron star called a gravistar. Yes. It's a super, super heavy star. It's a weird one. It's on that list of hypothetical stars you did for me a while ago. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> this one's not weird at all. Right, next one. In April, UK astronaut Tim Peake took part in which British sporting event from the International Space Station? Mm-hmm. I must say, this isn't like a confident round. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, apart from my first one. Um, uh, I think it was the London Marathon. It was. Yes. Um, he did that while harnessed to a treadmill. Do you know how long it took him? No. It was three hours or something. Uh, it was a good time it even was a, for, it was a to, very to be good on time. Earth, let alone in space. Three hours, 53 minutes. Yes. I it, don't know if that's a, does that, like, is that a good time in space when you're kind of... Um, I remember reading at the time that he, he had problems with the... Because you had, kind of, he had to wear a harness to keep yes. him on the treadmill. Mm. And he was having problems with the harness running. Oh, really? Um, and that was actually... So he had to slow down because of that, and that was what... So he actually could have been faster. He could have been faster. <laughs> I think I remember he, he, reading that he had like a, um, a kind of... Like a, a screen in front of him that was kind of visually putting him... On the streets, on the, on the, what do you mean, like of one of those bikes you get in the gym where it has a screen so you can pretend you're cycling through the Rocky Mountains? Yeah, or yeah. But he was in London. <laughs> do you think that was on a was that on a live cam? Do you think like he's watching someone else's know. run, or is he just know. like on his own, like he was running through a car? <laughs> <laughs> right. In May, observers in the UK were treated to a rare transit of Mercury. These events only occur during May's and November's. Can you tell me why? Oh, and there's the stick one. <laughs> um, in May's and November's, did you say? Yes. At the moment, only occurs in May or November. Any ideas? Um, well, it must be to do, just to do with Mercury's orbit. Yeah. It's really, yeah. It's really it's, it's just, simple. It's just that's when the orbit lines up. Okay. It's right. really simple. It is... Absolutely right. It's clockwork nature of the solar system. It only happens when it is um, closest to its aphelion or perihelion points, which are aphelion is in November, perihelion is in May. Um, do you guys know which transit, Mercury or Venus, is the faster one? No as, idea. As in which moves faster? Which takes place in the least amount of time? I would think it would be Mercury. No. Really? Yeah. But I thought Mercury moved faster. <laughs> but Mercury is but it's so much closer. Yeah. So ah. a transit of Mercury lasts for about, well, I think the last one was seven and a half hours. Mm. It was, you had a long time ago. Venus, was it an hour? I can't it's remember. It's short, comparatively. It, was, yeah, it, was, very it wasn't brief. very long. Right, we're going to jump a few months ahead for our next question. Mm-hmm. Going to September. 
and in September, the Hubble Space Telescope captured an image that showed possible water vapour plumes gushing forth from the Galilean moon Europa. And this is the latest in a long line of discoveries relating to water in our solar system. Can you tell me which is the only Galilean moon not thought to harbour a subsurface ocean? I think I've got that one. In which case, Ian? <laughs> um, is it Ganymede? It is not. Um, is it Io? It is. Because that one's a big pile of lava. It is. It is the <laughs> most violent of the four with at least 400 active volcanoes. 400? Apparently. That's, that's a lot. Yes. Do you know why it's got so many? Well, not so many. Why it's got volcanoes at all? What makes it so um, tempestuous? The, they think it's the tidal gravitational interaction with Jupiter, which yeah. just basically keeps on pulling on the rocks and keeps them nice and hot. Really, really toasty. Yes. Cool. Um, no, exactly not cool. <laughs> it is not in the slightest. I just think it's it's so so odd that you've got these three sort of giant snowballs and then this one living hell, essentially. And it's just... Strange, Why? isn't it? Why is that one like that? Mm. Um, we're staying in September, and in this month we had an announcement from NASA. We've always believed that the, uh, the Earth was the only tectonically active world in the solar system. In September, NASA announced there was one more. Which celestial body are we talking about, and how did they come to that conclusion? See, it's I imagine like... the which one is easy, the how. It's always the stinger with you, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> It was which planet, wasn't it? I said which celestial body. Okay. Oh. Ugh. Yeah. Oh, maybe. Right, Ian. I have a feeling it's one of Saturn's moons, but I don't know where I'm getting that from. Okay. So I'm going to have to say pass. I, I had it was either Mercury or Pluto, but I think it was with Mercury they found it was tectonically active much more recently than they thought. Or it was something to do with their, the shrinking crust around it. And Pluto, just because we discover lots of new stuff about Pluto. <laughs> the answer I was looking for was Mercury. Ah! Uh, and they found that in images captured from the Messenger spacecraft, mm. which um, they showed scarps. Scarps are little ridges. Yeah. Where one part of land either sunk or been raised in relation to the next one. No, so basically, because these scarps are really small, that means they were um, geologically quite young, which means that... They must have formed recently, inferring that Mercury has recently active plate tectonics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there was a recent discovery of um, uh, a, a large valley on, on Mercury mm. formed by scarps. So yes, the, I, should, I should really have got that. There's a, a, a big valley. that They think that one came from the fact that um, as the planet shrunk, essentially, because it was cooling down, um, it made things crack. And then a huge chunk just... Fell. Yeah. And made this canyon. Is it yeah. a canyon? Is it that big? I, I, when you say valley. It's, oh, it was it was three kilometers deep and thousands long. Oh, I that, think. that's pretty. Uh, it's sizable. quite. It's 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 yeah. It's a big one. <laughs> um, we're going to go to another cold grey world now. In November, we saw the largest supermoon in sixty-eight years. Can you tell me where the term supermoon comes from? There's a straight on this, so let's have it. Um, I think it's from astrology, originally. There's some astrology, Ian. I've got um, an ast some, some astrologer, basically. <laughs> some astrologer, basically. In the, in the 1970s, I think. It was, actually. It was 1979. Did you know that? 
Or were you just guessing the 1970s? No, I knew it was 1970 something. Okay. Yeah, it was uh, a astronomer. Astronomer? No, it wasn't an astronomer. It was an astrologer in 1979 who uh, just came up with this arbitrarily, using it to refer to any new or full moon, which occurs when the moon is at or near 90% of its closest approach to Earth. Okay. But I don't know, and I don't know if anyone knows, why 90% makes that a supermoon. Uh, I think I'd, I'd heard someone kind of raise that query, uh, or I read online that it that doesn't seem to be any kind of reason why. But um, yeah, just that's kind of that's big enough. That's it. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> why not? Do you know what we should be calling a supermoon? Perigee syzygy. Perigee syzygy. <laughs> it's a little bit more. Technically, it's a little bit more. What? It's a perigee syzygy of the Earth-Sun-Moon system. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which might be why Supermoon has gained some traction. Yeah, you're not really going to get that one in a hashtag, are you? Can you imagine that on the front cover? A <laughs> <laughs> final question. Psotes. That's what it would be if you if you if you acronym did it. It'd be, it'd be Psotes. Which does, again, Supermoon is better. With a silent P as well. With a, yeah, with a silent P. Our final question it remains in November. This is quite a recent one. So, there's a star around 5,000 light years away called Kepler 1145123. It has a record-breaking quality. What is that quality? Uh, well, that sounded like someone who knows definitely what <laughs> they, uh, they, they're writing down. Totally don't only know this one because I was reading it this morning. Hey, Ian. It's going to be like the most something exoplanet. Um... No, no, I definitely it's a, said it's a, a star. star. Oh, okay, star. Um, the star is an exoplanet. No Surprise! idea. Surprise! <laughs> <laughs> that would definitely be break some records. Uh, <laughs> well, that's what I get for not listening. It is the roundest thing in nature, I think. That is what I claim, yes. Yes. Most stars, and indeed moons and planets, appear a bit uh, oblate. Mm-hmm. Because they spin, and if uh, you were to look at Jupiter through a telescope, you would be able to see it's a little bit squashed because it spins so fast. Now, do you know how fine that roundness is? Um, I, I do actually. It was three kilometers difference between the, the polar. polar and equatorial axes, which was about one point five million kilometers. I think. Was, was 1.5 million kilometres is its radius. Is its radius. And the difference and between those two radii is three kilometres. Yeah, it's tiny. So for context, the sun is half the size, uh, and the difference in its radii is 10 kilometres. So yes, much rounder. Yeah, I, I did work out exactly how much that was, but it's fractions, fractions of a percent. What's uh, Do you know which one's rounder, Earth or the sun? I think it would be the Earth. Ian? I would have said the sun. Why would why would you say the Earth? Because it spins slower. Does it? I don't, actually don't know that. <laughs> um, I think so. I think the sun spins in a couple of hours. I might be confusing it with Jupiter. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 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 not that hot on how long it because you don't the sun doesn't really have a day. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, the actual answer is the sun. Because the Earth's variance is 21 kilometres. Ah. Which is even worse when you think how much smaller the Earth is yeah. compared to the Sun, mm. compared to this planet. So, yes, exceptionally round. Um, 
Well done, guys. So after some careful back of the envelope maths, <laughs> Ezzy takes it with seven to five. Mm. Yay! <laughs> Um, now, I remember things. <laughs> it's quite. It's quite a lot. There's uh, quite a lot to go back over this year. It's been a busy year. It has been. It has been a pretty good year for space. There's been a few things that have happened that weren't so good. <laughs> <laughs> Not mentioning any names, Chaparelli. Mm. <laughs> now we're going to hear from the Sky Night TV show's Pete Lawrence, who is going to give us some advice on observing winter's stalwart constellation Orion. During the winter in the Northern Hemisphere, the most prominent constellation on view is that of Orion the Hunter. And it's not surprising really, because here you've got seven fairly bright stars forming a very recognisable pattern in the night sky. Right in the centre of the constellation is a line of three similar brightness stars equispaced in an absolute straight line, and that forms Orion's belt. Hanging down from his belt is a faint line of stars which forms Orion's sword. And when you look at it with the naked eye, there's a certain misty expectancy about this region. It just looks like it would be interesting if you used a pair of binoculars or a telescope to look at it. The brighter star on view here is right at the bottom of the sword, and that's Iota Orionis. That has a magnitude of plus 2.8, so that's a fairly easy naked eye object to look at. The rest of the sword is made up of fainter stars, and there's quite a lot of them there too. In fact, a lot of these actually belong to other deep sky objects. So if you have a pair of binoculars and you look at the sword, you can see Iota Orionis shining away at the bottom. And around it, there is a little group of stars, and that makes up NGC 1980, which is an open cluster. At the other end, i.e. right at the top of the sword, you have NGC 1981, another open cluster. So they sort of bookend the main sword region. In between, you've got an area which looks decidedly misty when you look at it through binoculars, and that is the famous Orion Nebula, Messier 42. To the north of the Orion Nebula, as you head towards NGC 1981, there is another little group of stars there, which are fairly clear to make out. Now they come into their own if you have a very big telescope or you do a long exposure with a camera, which I'll come back to in a moment. Now a telescope will reveal even more detail. If you use a low power eyepiece, you can get all of the sword in or perhaps a large section of it. And that's when things start to get really interesting, because the Orion Nebula takes on a different form whatever type of instrument you use. With a telescope, you should be able to make out the main bright kidney-shaped region right at the heart of the nebula. You should also be able to make out these sweep-back regions which come away from that bright region, almost trying to loop around and join up. In fact, if you have a big telescope on a low power, they should join up. There's a huge, faint arc of gas glowing away there. Now, if you pile on the power to the bright bit right at the center of the nebula, you should be able to make out the form of the trapezium cluster. This is four stars, which are really close together, which are part of a larger group of stars, which is the trapezium cluster, which have formed out of the nebula material itself. 
Also, don't forget to look for M43, which lies to the northeast of that main bright region of M42. Now, M43 is often overlooked. It's a comma-shaped, uh, fainter nebula than M42. But it is a beautiful object in its own right. And there's a dark dust lane that separates it from the brighter bit of M42. Now, with larger instruments, you'll see even more detail there, and you'll start to make out these loops and wisps of gas glowing away as around the sweepback regions of the main nebula. As you head north from M42 towards NGC 1981, there is a region here where some quite nice middle brightness stars looked at through a telescope, which shine away, they're not difficult to see. But if you have a big aperture, you might be able to make out a mistiness around these stars. Now, this is a very complex region of the sky. It contains NGC 1973, 1975, and 1977. And together, these form what is known as the Running Man Nebula. It's basically a reflection nebula. It's a nebula which shows because it is reflecting starlight with some dark dust lanes in front of it, dividing up the sections of the nebula, and those dark dust lanes look like a stick running man running across the sky. So next time you're out and you see beautiful Orion hanging there in the night sky, have a look at the sword region. And no matter what type of instrument you've got, it will give you amazing rewards when you look at it. If you want to find out more about some of the other stars that make up Orion, you can pick up our January issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine, where we look at some of the best stars of winter. Also, we'll be talking to astronaut Tim Peake one year after his stay on the International Space Station, as well as previewing some of the space missions that we have to look forward to in the coming decade. We'll demystify the spectral class system in the guide, as well as telling you how you can make your own automated flat panel and dust cap. Plus, we're going to have all our monthly equipment reviews and our sky guide. All I have to say is that BBC Sky at Night magazine is available in print and in several digital formats. You can find out more at skyatnightmagazine.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. This has been Radio Astronomy. We have been BBC Sky at Night magazine and we'll be back in a month's time. 